Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. My guest today is the novelist and nonfiction author Madison Smart Bell. He's written 13 novels, including a trilogy of historical books about Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Slave Rebellion, one of which, All Souls Rising, was a finalist for the National Book Award. He's also written three collections of short stories and two biographies. His latest book is a novel set in the gritty, turbulent Cotiers of Paris. It includes a large cast of memorable and fascinating characters, and it explores power dynamics and zealotry, inequity, and racism. It's called The Witch of Matongay. Madison Sparpel and I talked about the book in January. Because our conversation was pre-recorded, we aren't able to take any calls or emails today. Madison, welcome back. Always good to see you. Well, it's nice to be here. I thought I had taught you to uh, not call the Haitian Revolution a slave rebellion. Oh. Haven't we been over this? Well, uh, so, so what should we saying, call it? The revolution? Uh, you call it the Haitian Revolution. That's what it was. It created a new independent state. It was not a rebellion. Oh. It might have begun as a rebellion, but it ended as a revolution equivalent to the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Yes, I am compulsive about conveying this information. Oh, you should be, and I am <laughs> delighted to be corrected. All right, so it's the revolution. <laughs> but Toussaint Louverture, you know, is a, has played a big role in your creative uh, output. I mean, this is, uh, this well, is that's a guy true. You, you concentrated on for quite a while. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he's been a great influence on me. I, I uh, often ask myself in tricky situations, what would Toussaint do? And frequently the answer is nothing. <laughs> he, liked to, he liked to wait and let his enemies destroy each other. He was very and, patient in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, found him to be a useful example in that way. Well, it's interesting because the... Um, the immersion uh, that you have had uh, throughout your career, as, both as a writer and as just a, a, a person, um, in Haitian culture, uh, voodoo, those kinds of things, they, they play a role in this book, too, The Witch of Matongay. Um, tell us what Matongay is. It's an actual place. Uh, and what happens there? Uh, Matongay is the African quarter of Brussels. And uh, really not too much of the action of this book happens there because the book is set in Paris for the most part. But uh, the the witch of a, of a title uh, lives lives in the Matongay, which is it's slightly odd because she's not African or Haitian or anything. She's actually uh, from the Roma people. Um, and you don't even really know she's there until about halfway through the book. It's... Uh, that's a sort of sleight of hand trick where the you have a first person narrator, like the voice is kind of prominent in the story from the start, but you don't know that the the first person narrator is actually going to appear on the scene until, until fairly late in the game. So, and I love that device. I mean, it's really really interesting because there is there's this person telling you what's going on. Um, but but this person doesn't identify him or herself, um, and that person is not, uh, at least it, 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 as far as you can tell at the beginning, you know, directly involved in the the activities of the characters that he or she is describing. You have no idea who this person is, and then it becomes clear eventually, uh, well into the book, who the person is. Yeah, I've done the same maneuver in a short story. 
many years ago, a short story called Black and Tan. Just uh, it's a technical challenge. I sort of set myself a task, and in this case, it just sort of happened by itself. But but the, the feel of it, I think, is you've got a authorial voice and they're in a voice that that feels kind of personal but often you get that and um, where no first person narrator is going to appear on the stage but then eventually she does uh, well what's step in- onto the stage what is interesting um, is that the narrator uh, uh, doesn't doesn't have the kind of information that narrators often have there's a section uh, in which the narrator says, as usual, I have no idea what he's thinking. I see him light his cigarette and smoke it very slowly, and I see nothing more. So the the narrator has sort of limits to what uh, she can can reveal. Well, so the limitations are, that you just described are very particular to one character who's generally known as, uh, as the American um, because it, that's how she sees him, but uh, but otherwise her power is to know what's happening now, and she has omniscient knowledge of what's happening now, but she can't actually see the future. She's not even on the scene. She's she's you know sitting in her kitchen uh, in the Matongay section of Br- Brussels, seeing this stuff in a bowl of water, um, and uh, and she has access to thought. Um, of all the characters except for the American who she can't penetrate. And the reason uh, she can't uh, penetrate is because he has this charm. I'm holding up, I love to hold up stuff on the radio, a little red thing uh, <laughs> around his neck uh, that uh, in Haitian culture is called a pointy spinet. It makes you invisible to your enemies. Ah. Um, so I've been wearing one of these things for many years. Uh, so she, she can out. There's a moment where he takes it off because he has to like redo it, and uh, and then she can read his mind for a minute. You know, so that's a, a kind of a little climax in the story. The um, book is The Witch of Matangay. The author is my guest, Madison Smart Bell. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or comments today. Um, there are a bunch of people in this book, a lot of people, uh, many, many minor characters, but there's kind of four main characters. So let's talk about them. Uh, three of them are men, and they are uh, potential suitors for one girl. Let's talk about the young girl, Jael. Tell us about her. Uh, okay, well, this is... Uh, <laughs> um, uh, she's a fantasy, basically, but I, when I was in Paris, living in Paris some years ago, I uh, I went to this place that's in between. Uh, it's it's in the same spot where the fictional bar uh, uh, La Zone Gris is. And I went in there in the morning because I either had to catch a train or meet a trainer. I don't know what. And uh, uh, there was this there was this uh, beautiful girl behind the bar, and I was came in somewhat hastily in order to appear, and she looked at me reprovingly and said, uh, bonjour, as, as you know, in France, if you don't start conversations with bonjour, you will be reproached for this. So I suddenly came out with a good piece of repartee in French, mais je suis timide, j'ose pas dire bonjour, and I'm à une belle. Says it means I'm, I'm shy, I'm, I'm afraid to say, say hello to a beautiful girl. And so she smiled at me and brought me my beer and then she went in the back and then, 
uh, there was this other guy who becomes uh, Jean, what's his name in the book? Uh, he, he was the only other guy in the place because it was early, and uh, and he kind of raised his glass at me and said, "That was pretty good. You know, you got it. You got out of that clean." So years later, I'm stuck for something to write. I thought, oh, I'll write this scene. Oh, I forgot to mention, I started writing this book in French. Ah. That was that went on for like five chapters, and then I realized it was unsustainable. There is a lot of French in there. There is a lot nice of enough, You're nice enough to translate uh, each phrase that you know, the characters uh, utter in French. Yes, and I had a I had a really Concord Free Press furnished me a really great copy editor because from that point of view, it was a pain in the neck, and uh, and she did a great job, and we we argued a certain amount, but but her work had to be done, and she did it very well. Um, but so, yes, so at a certain point I realized I can't write this whole book in French and I switched to English and I just did that and went on. But at the end of the day, I had to go back and translate the first five chapters, which was unfun. Um, so, so actually I still feel like on those first few chapters, they kind of seem like a bad translation. <laughs> but I hope to. So you didn't reader start over writing in English. You just decided to translate what you had done. From French into English? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, yes. That, right. I guess I could have done it differently, but I didn't see a way. So so this young girl in the book uh, is uh, a point of interest, to be sure, for three characters. You mentioned one of them, the American. We well, she, really uh, she's the gra- she is the granddaughter of the witch. We might start with that. She is, uh, she is a, a person of Roma descent, and the bar, this is also true of the bar, it's based on I went there later with a more knowledgeable friend, and he said, yeah, these people are all gypsies. Um, and so I thought, okay, that's a thing. And then there is, uh, um, I thought I could use that for the background of the witch herself. And uh, and then there's some, it connects up to some medieval witchcraft stuff out of the Malleus Maleficorum, which is uh, quoted at some length. And uh, so, so most of the witchy stuff isn't isn't voodoo for once. It's uh, it's of European background, and then. Uh, but is is your interest in voodoo related to your interest in the witch and and uh, the Roma tradition uh, in that regard? I mean, they're they're not the same thing to be sure, but are they are they sort of you know spiritually related? Well, first of all, I don't know a lot about Roma culture. And most of what I did, what what I do know, I had to research. So um, European witchcraft is pretty accessible. I mean, I already knew something about that and was able to learn more. I'd actually read the Malleus Maleficorum, which is a, a textbook for detecting and exterminating witches from the Middle Ages. Before, you know, so I had that knowledge and. Uh, um, yeah, at one I mean, point, at one point there's is, a description that says there are three degrees of witches, and it, and it's very right. And that's you know, all out of the yeah. That's all out of the. There, there's this, the whole chapter in the book about whether or not a witch can make a man's penis actually disappear or only seem to be appear is verbatim from the Malleus Maleficorum, um, but. Yeah, and that I mean, very for, for, strange occurrence does, you know, uh, play a part in the book. But the the uh, granddaughter of the witch, this uh, pretty young girl uh, in this bar, 
Um, there are three people, the American and two others who are in love with her, uh, at least to a certain extent. Jean-Pierre is one of them, and he is, in fact, Haitian. Right. Um, let me let me go back to Jael and her ancestry for so, so maybe finally answer the question that you asked, if you can <laughs> believe it. But uh, so in terms of her background, her mother, I mean, she's just this very young girl trying to survive in Paris, basically, by working in a bar. I mean, uh, but... She has her grandmother who's in another city, and her mother was, we come to find out, was killed in a um, skinhead attack on a on a gypsy encampment, which happened with some encouragement from the French far right, and that I had plucked out of an actual news story, and which had a photo, which I was never able to find, but which I remember uh, where this woman is like trying to ward off attackers by holding up this thing, probably a cross. It's a small thing. So in the book, it becomes a, a, a pendant that represents the hanged man from the tarot. So there's, it's all connected one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so I'm just trying to get to uh, help our listeners uh, sort of set the scene with the three people who are. Uh, enamored of Jael. So tell us a little bit about Jean-Pierre, who is from Haiti. Uh, so Jean-Pierre is sort of the uh, official boyfriend lover, and uh, uh, he comes from a class of people that I know a fair amount about because of my Haitian experience. That is, he was, he's constructed as a member of uh, what's sometimes called the oligarchy, the 40 families, the uh, or by people who are hostile, uh, the morally repugnant elite wealthy Haitians at the very top of the um, Haitian food chain. But in Paris, he's not wealthy. He's not living on remittances. He's making his own way as an artist by doing uh, uh, portraits, you know, flattering portraits of people. That's how he makes his living. And he's actually self-sufficient. And uh, so he has a sensibility that comes from privilege, but he's not um, living on the on that particular fat mm-hmm. at the moment that we meet him. And the American, uh, who is referred to almost exclusively always throughout, the always as the American, he's got, got a little mystery going on, too. Well, the thing is, he's he's opaque to the to the witch, he's to the, the, the uh, passageway for information reaching the reader, so you really only see what he does and you don't get explanations for it. I mean, you, you see what he does and what he says, and uh, he's ex-Special Forces, turns out. So he was a participant in the invasion in Haiti that restored Aristide in the 1990s. You find that out rather late. Um, he's uh, a jewel merchant. He's made a bit of money doing that. And uh, his reason for being in Paris is to... Uh, um, connect with a friend of his who's uh, involved in robbing a, what was supposed to be money but turns out to be uncut diamonds from a flight out of Brussels, I think. Yeah. And that's based on a real event, too. 
but yeah, so, uh, with which I had no involvement with the other whatsoever. I hasten to admit. Right, and because there's, um, there's all sorts of little things that weave in and out of this, and we'll talk about another fascinating character, a little kid named Abu, uh, when we come back from a break. My guest is Madison Smart Bell, and we are talking about his latest novel, The Witch of Matongay. We'll listen to more of my conversation with Madison Bell on the other side of a quick break. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is the novelist Madison Smart Bell. We're talking about his latest novel, The Witch of Matongay. Madison Smart Bell on the faculty of Goucher College and the author of 13 novels. Our show today was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or online comments. So, Madison, before the break, we were talking about uh, the three uh, men uh, who are enamored of Jael, who is a central figure, uh, and certainly another central figure in this book is a young uh, Arab named Abu. Uh, tell us a little bit about him and how he figures. Well, Abu is uh, a member of the Parisian uh, Muslim community, and uh, he's you know, maybe in his late teens, uh, so a little younger than Jael, probably. Um, he's like the um, the scut work around the bar, you know, so he has very low status there, like probably zero status there. Um, his mother is a widow. Um, his brother is uh, locked up in Guantanamo or somewhere for having participated in anti-American activities abroad, and uh, and he's sort of torn between a Sufi sheikh who lives in his neighborhood and kind of treats him as a uh, as a student and acolyte, and uh, this other guy who's more like a terrorist trainer, you know. So he, in terms of his spiritual life, which is. Uh, so those are his two guys, and he sort of oscillates between them. Um, but uh, and you, and at, you, the, at the end of the day, he ends up wearing a suicide vest. Yeah, and you and you ex- it. and you explore uh, his sort of journey through radicalism. Um, was that a difficult thing to write? Uh, was that was that something that uh, you know? Again, you did a lot of research about. I mean, how do you you know? Of course, how how do you put your head in, into the character of any number of characters you've invented over the years? But um, it would seem to me that that's a particularly fraught one and a particularly uh, you know difficult well, it's, one. Well, it's, it's probably why that book was ended up being published by a very small press because you're not supposed to uh, you know project characters like that if you're me anymore, you know. So, uh, which could also be true of the Roma characters, you know. Uh, uh, and that's an argument that I appreciate without obviously really agreeing with. But 
So you're talking uh, so, about appropriation. Here. Right. So, I mean, the, the in publishing right now, the hashtag own voices thing is overpoweringly strong. you got to be one to write about one. That has become a rule. Uh, I don't think it's a very good rule, and it's certainly not what I'm going to follow. But I, I can also see why people object to characterizations like Tonto. You know, if you don't – I mean, you know, if you write caricatures or stereotypes – that's not a good thing, um, and I also appreciate their argument that, that people like me writing about other types of people uses up airspace that those um, people could use to write about themselves. So those two arguments, I think, are, are legitimate, um, but I still won't follow the rule because, and this is something I do teach, my, say to my students at Goucher every semester, um, if you forbid yourself to imagine the lives of others, you can't build empathy. And we end up being all very isolated in terms of the way we think about each other. So that's my argument in favor of being able to, you know, represent characters that are utterly unlike you. Um, for Abu, my characterization was reinforced by uh, the fact that, you know, over a very long time, I've read really a lot of Islamic texts, um, uh, poetry, hadith, uh, Sufi material, the, the Quran. And uh, so I do know something about it, not as a practitioner, but but from, from what, what you can learn reading primary material. And with that behind me, you take a, you know, put, the, put this material into the head of a, you know, 16, 17-year-old boy who doesn't have any family support and is trying to make his way on the streets of Paris while different things are brewing, like, uh, for example, that huge attack on Paris that happened when I was close to finishing the book. It was like this happened, and I thought, okay, I'm stuck for an ending. This is horrible, but it's an end. It's my ending. I'm going to use this. Yeah. And because, um, you know, Paris has been the scene of uh, a number of uh, attacks. I mean, the uh, the editorial offices of uh, Charlie Hebdo, the magazine. Yeah, yeah, no, that was truly awful. I mean, the, the, the French pu- French publishing world is quite small, and although I and I didn't actually know the Charlie Hebdo people, but I uh, uh, a lot of people I do know, a lot of close friends I had did know them, and so I, I felt that you know, with one degree of separation. Plus, there was a preliminary before they actually killed them all. So I started watching it at that point. Yeah, that's one of the, that's one of the worst things that's, that's happened. And, and, the, the, and how the, would you gauge the climate there now? I mean, you spend a lot of time in Paris. You have lived well, there. You I haven't, haven't been there I in a while. I have not been there. But, but yeah, since the... I forget when the last time I was there. Which but but, but it seems that the that the climate uh, in terms of the the tension between the Arab world and the West um, perhaps is is more acute. It's more uh, it, the tension is higher uh, in a place like Paris than it is in some of the other European capitals. Well, one of the inflection points is this thing called the law of secularity, which means that uh, people in uh, French public schools can't wear the hijab, things like that. So that's that, and this is a factor in the book. The um, that's considered to be a real kind of, uh, you know, by the Muslim population, uh, uh, to be extremely uh, oppressive, sure, you know, like materially oppressive and also insulting. Um, from the point of view of like Western white folks, it makes perfect sense, but to them, it makes us in an utterly different way. It's something to resist. 
by any means necessary. So that's a thing that's going around in Abu's head. Yeah. It's not I mean, the only I, thing, but it's one of the things. I mean, just as a character in a novel, it makes yeah. him incredibly fascinating, but it's a very fraught. I mean, the tension in this book uh, is really, it just bounces off uh, every single page. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of subtlety, a lot of uh, things that uh, uh, you, you don't quite ever know how things are going to be. It's a, it is a page turner in that regard. Uh, and I and I assume that that was you know quite purposeful keeping keeping the reader uh, on the edge of uh, of her seat. Well, thank you. I, another little conflict for Abu is the the classic uh, whores and virgins thing uh, because he he has somewhat regular sex with Jael in a friendly fashion and for reasons for out of a habit that was established in a. Uh, Sort of independently of any romance, let's put it that way, uh, in which and in which they weren't the only two people involved. Um, but this is something they do, like it was a sport or whatever. Meanwhile, he has this big crush on a girl who uh, lives in this building. He you know goes around in full full burqa, uh, so that he's never seen her face. So. Yeah, I mean, uh. <laughs> and so there, there's a sort of coming-of-age quality there. There's a coming-of-age uh, dimension to uh, Jael. Um, but as I was reading this, I was thinking this is not just a young woman, you know, sort of finding herself. Um, I mean, I suppose on, on a certain level, we're always all, all of us, coming-of-age, aren't we? I mean, you know, just who says coming-of-age has to be limited to, you know, your teenage years and your... Uh, young adult years. I mean, I think that it's a it's a constant journey uh, as we as we continue through life, and and each one of these characters, uh, you know, evolves and and I suppose comes of age in his or her own way. Well, yeah, I think if you if you stop evolving intellectually and emotionally, you're uh, you're done. Is it harder for you? to write novels now at this point in your life? You're in your 60s. You've written a bunch of novels. Does, do they come as as readily and as easily as they seem to have come uh, in the early uh, portions of your career? Uh, I just wonder if, if the, the, the endeavor, the actual exercise of writing, um, is, would, would, can you describe it as harder or easier or the same? Well, I don't know because I've kind of stopped doing it. Actually, this is—I'm uh, uh, presenting this as my last novel. Um, and you haven't had one for a while. I hadn't had one for a while. Uh, The—I've been moonlighting as an agent um, for uh, four or five years, and one of the an things, agent of other. Uh, I'm a, like I'm a literary agent for other author, authors, which is kind of a logical outgrowth of my having run a free referral service for uh, other authors for most of my career as a teacher. But uh, um, one of the things I've learned, I mean, I learned it from direct experience, but working as an agent uh, um, expands the, my, my sense of the situation, which is that the demand for mid-list authors from the 20th century right now is zero. So... So just as a business proposition, just as a business pro- proposition. Is, so, is so for me, I've learned. I mean, I'll still try if I really care about the book. But I know I'm if I'm working with somebody like me, whose career was mostly in the 20th century, and is like an aging white person. 
I'm starting a long way behind the eight ball. And since I belonged to that class, I thought, okay, I had a good run. I had a great run. Um, And I'm not complaining. And so... I think this is one of your best novels. No, I know it is. I I really do like it. And is it... Do you think it's... No, I do think it... And that's one of the reasons I kind of like finishing with it. You know, like I'm not going to, you know, do declining work. That's what I say now. This could always change, but... uh, because um, you have also written things that are not novels. Yeah, I write nonfiction. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving that up. And I think, you know, another factor in this was uh, when another little book of mine came out, The Color of Night. This was probably, I mean, time really does fly. Ten years ago, it got a it got a angry review in the blogosphere that started out with, Here's all of us struggling to get anything published at all, and bleep blank Madison Smart Bell gets to publish another book. It's maddening. And this on the this assumption, really, and the assumption there is that you got to publish another book because you had published a bunch of other books previously. Well, I think it was like it was like I'm breathing their oxygen, you know. And I, uh, my agent was infuriated by this, and I thought, uh, no, no, I kind of see the point, you know. Um, so I mean, is, is part of your, your decision to step aside, to, to make room for those folks who have not been published? I mean, particularly, you know, if I was you know, still getting big advances and big promotion from New York, I would, I would keep doing it. But luck of the draw, I'm not. So so be it. You know, I'm not going to, you know, tie myself in a knot about it. I don't want to try to think of other things that are, that are, that are good to do. And, I mean, I've had a much better career than most people get, particularly when their books don't earn out, which most of mine have not. And by earning out, you mean they equal the advance. Earning back and making, actually making money for the publisher. Okay, so uh, I happen to have most of my career in a period where you sort of didn't really have to do that. You could keep on, but that too has changed. And that's because publishers had certain uh, authors on their roster that were making lots and lots and lots of money. Well, who when, could I, okay, when I published those my first weren't. book, my first book was with Viking, who then published Stephen King. And the sort of joke around the house was, you know, light a candle for, for uh, Stephen King uh, because he's the only person keeping this publisher afloat. And I thought at the time that that was sort of an exemplary tale. It turned out to be literally true. Um, but the publishing model, like when I entered, it was, it was beginning to fade, was okay, we're going to invest in 10 writers for their career and uh, maybe f- maybe five of them will break even, the other four won't, and the 10th one will be Stephen King and we stay in business. And 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 is that because the literary public, the, the, the appetite for, for literary fiction uh, was what it was and it was limited uh did they assume that that appetite would stay fairly steady so that five would make it and five maybe wouldn't well yeah i think that assumption the the assumption of readership of a sort of constant readership uh changed i mean the readership has shrunk publishing itself has shrunk and at the same time writers in the uh, academy another class to which i belong have produced an exponential increase in the number of writers who are trying to break in and 
reduce with reduced publishing opportunities and uh, you know shrinking readership because there are so many other ways that people get their narrative entertainment now. So you know to go back to that angry review, it's like. Yeah, okay, yeah. No, I know what you're talking about, and I'm complicit in another way because I train writers. Yeah, um, and that's a whole other <laughs> thing. You know, the Academy is, has no paucity of people aspiring to do what you have done. Well, exactly, and that was that was our meal ticket for, for two and a half generations. Madison Smart Bell, his 13th novel, is called The Witch of Matongay. We'll have more with Madison Smart Bell after a quick break. A reminder, our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or online comments. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is 88.1 WYPR. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Madison Smart Bell, the author of 13 novels, the latest of which takes place in Paris with events that unfold under the watchful eye of a mystical figure in Matangay, the African quarter of Brussels, Belgium. The book is called The Witch of Matangay. It's published by the Concord Free Press, which gives all of its publications away for free online and through a network of independent bookstores that includes the Ivy Bookshop here in North Baltimore. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we're not taking any calls or online comments today. So, Madison, let's talk about this model. Uh, this is not your first book for the Concord Free Press, um, and it is an interesting model indeed. The books are free. You can request one online. They'll ship it to you for free. They ask that you make a donation, not to them, but to a cause that is dear to your heart. And then they ask that you pass the book on to somebody else. There's even a page, uh, a couple pages at the end of the book where people write their name, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera, of the people who've read it. Um, where did this idea come from, and how did you get involved? Well, it's uh, the brainchild of Stona Fitch and probably his wife, Anne, and a few other people, I think. Uh, Stona I met in the 1990s, uh, at a reunion of Princeton writers, he was. I, he he came in the year after I graduated, so I didn't know him. Uh, I didn't know him as a student. I met him for the first time at this reunion thing. Also attended by the late Russell Banks, who is to be missed. Uh, he just recently died, but um, um, but Stone had been a student of Russell's, and I was a friend of Russell's, and uh, so that brought us together on that occasion. I really like Stone. Um, he was, uh, somebody noticed uh, while we were sitting around at a bar that he was wearing a Braille watch. And they, they said, are you blind? And, and he said, yeah, I'm just, uh, or, or, you know, like, why are you wearing a Braille watch? And, uh, 
Um, he said, he said, yeah, I'm blind. I'm just high functioning. Um, and then he told the truth, which was uh, when he was a kid, he swam in some bad water and was deaf for like three months, completely deaf. And then his hearing came back to normal. And uh, so, so he wears the watch to remind him of what it's like to have a sensory impairment. I thought, this is a cool guy. I want to get to know this guy more. <laughs> um, uh, he then spent a number of years in a punk rock band called uh, Scruffy the Cat. And uh, and when he, when he started Concord Free Press, he, one of the things he would say is that um, it runs on punk rock ethics, uh, which I'm not sure what that is, except like a sort of anarchist, anarchist ethics, really like, you know, take what you need and give what you can. And um, and so that's the idea. It's like a it's a it's a publishing operation that's completely antithetical to any other publisher. It's a business model that exists, and uh, and they raise a lot of money. Because I mean, there is, there is of, no business model really. I well, mean, except except they do record the donations. So the books I've had with them have, in that sense, made more money than any of my other books, hmm. which feels kind of good. And, and 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 that calculation, that metric, is by the amount of money that has been donated uh, on right. behalf they, of your books, and they record and publish that. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't. You have to perform a charitable action of some kind. You can give a bagel to a to a panhandler, or you can give uh, you know fifty thousand dollars to the Society for the Preservation of the Umlaut, or you know, I mean, so. The range is enormous. Some some are very small, and but they raise money in order to you know print the books and run the operation. They 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 get donations uh, for that too. I th- you know, I don't have any idea exactly how that works. I mean, someone is bankrolling the production of these books. I, you can ask me about that all you want to, but I yeah. have no answer because I don't know. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> but but I don't think you know. I think it's legit. I don't think they're yeah, you know, yeah robbing yeah. banks or selling drugs or anything. Yeah, um, but the, but the money doesn't go. The money that they ask you to donate doesn't go to donating. No, because to, it to doesn't the, go to them. Group. It goes. Right. You can pick any cause and you just tell them about it. That's the whole concept. This is kind of pay it forward. Yeah, you know, uh, right. You know, find a right. good cause and 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 there and is a little thread of uh, anarchist thinking in there too. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Um, and is is writing for that kind of a press? How is that different than writing for Viking or Random House or the? Well, first publisher? of all, you just know advance. Um, secondly, you're like probably never going to make any money. You know, like the lands in your pocket. Um, but uh, it's also so it's, it's it's an elite group because they don't. Uh, for people, they have a, a, a class. The, their idea was to publish uh, writers well known enough so that the concept would work. You know, so it's it's nice to be included, um, and it's it's basically. I mean, you mentioned it's, it's, Ru- Russell Banks. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates is involved with this. I mean, there are some very big literary names, yours included. Uh, right, and then there also Stoner kind of specialized in people whose whose careers were in um, have been very good, but were in a little bit of decline, so that they weren't going to be able to sell book X for a whole bunch of money in New York, um, but still had an audience. And uh, so I think that's you know that it's canny to that extent has has worked out very well. And then. Uh, 
you know, so you don't expect uh, a lot of conventional uh, media attention. You might get some, um, but it's more like a a feeling of participating in something that's that's uh, worth worthwhile and has a far more direct outcome, like you know, a measurable positive outcome. That's more like. Well, this book may have touched some hearts and minds, and <laughs> yeah. yeah, you hope for that too. You always hope for that, but you usually don't hear about it. You can't go to the publisher's web website and said so and so, you know, gave X amount of money to the American Cancer Society because of the way people smoke in your novel. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so the the gratification level, I'm sure, is very high. And the way that publishing, uh, you know, as an outsider, to me, there are so many people who are self-publishing now. There's that whole thing, the, the DIY uh, uh, dimension of publishing. There's like a DIY dimension of music. You know, people aren't uh, signing with record labels anymore. They're just producing their own music. They're streaming it. They're making it They available. put it on TikTok and become multimillionaires. Yeah. And, right. Yeah, I mean, that happens. That happens to maybe like... Uh, uh, one person in ten thousand. Yeah, that's doesn't get talked about quite so much. But but, but, uh, but when you say that you know readership is down and you know publishing, I mean, there's been conglomeration. There's been you know uh, publishers that have uh, just you know gone by the wayside, and others that have combined with other uh, formerly uh, competing enterprises. Um, there's there's that there's that perspective on what's going on in published. The other perspective is that independent bookstores have never been doing better. Uh, there are some that are doing uh, quite nicely. I mean, the Ivy Bookshop here uh, in town, Greedy Reads, I mean, a couple of the other uh, shops here just in Baltimore, uh, as I understand it, are, are doing pretty well. People are coming to events. They're, they're buying books. Uh, they want to support their local book vendors. Um, it, it seems to be there, there's two tales going on here. Well, I think partly, like chain bookstores, are not doing that well. So after after, this is not something I I, I used to have some expertise on this because I watched the effort. Uh, there was a war that happened mostly in the '90s and early outs, in which the chains tried to exterminate the indies by imitating them, and uh, and then along came Amazon. And uh, my impression is that, so, I mean, you don't really see chain stores around anymore, do you? I mean, well, you know, the, the big occasional orders, Barnes and Noble, you know. Uh, the occasional, but, but the, like their um, stranglehold on the business, I think, was destroyed by Amazon, which is not by any means a 100% good thing. But well, I think it's probably created space for independent bookstores, where which becomes a place where people can go if they don't want to buy their books online, if they want to go in and uh, go in and, and be part of a, a local community. And talk to a knowledgeable person, you know. Right. Oh, I like Ann Patchett. I like Participate in What else would I like? Yeah. And I think, uh, I think you know, the Ivy, under the ownership of uh, Ed Berlin and also uh, just as much and maybe more Emma Snyder, who I'm, like, I'm really happy that they came through the pandemic, which they did, you know, very intelligently. But, uh, but uh, yeah, that's the community center. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not just the bookstore. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, uh, in your hometown of Nashville, uh, Ann Patchett and other friends of yours, uh, Parnassus Books is doing great. As a matter of fact, she told me once that Amazon opened a brick-and-mortar store virtually across the street from Parnassus. But then they closed it. It didn't work. Amazon moved away, and Parnassus is still there. You know, so she's and she she's pretty bullish on on how things are going for independent bookstores and and by extension for publishers who are and and authors who are looking to find an audience and with the internet and with uh, you know the other ways that people can get uh, to their audience. Um, she seemed to think the last time I talked to her that you know the, the, the things were looking up in a lot of ways. Well, she you know now I grew up in Nashville too, and. Uh, she started Parnassus, uh, I think that's part of the official rhetoric, because there was no bookstore in Nashville whatsoever yeah, yeah. Uh, at a certain point because they'd all sort of defeated themselves. And when I was a kid, there were two family-run bookstores, Zebras and Mel's. Uh, that was, you know, they were sort of Ivy-sized. Um, chain, chain bookstores hadn't happened yet. Um, and then when she was growing up, I'm guessing, there was an independent bookstore that, uh, like, da- called Davis Kid that started sort of like Bibolo here. It started. And um, Bibolo was a, for a while a very predominant. Bibolo started with one store and became a local chain, and they 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 got too big, and you know Amazon started cutting into their market share. Something similar happened to Davis Kid, and I think that's why there was a moment with no no bookstores in in Nashville. But I I think yeah. I mean, I hadn't, you know, followed it all that closely for for that period. There was uh, there there was a, a, a time when I thought I could write a great article about how the chains are, you know, trying to stamp out the independent bookstores, but I was afraid to, um, for obvious reasons. So, <laughs> so, but I did pay attention. I haven't been, but I think this is yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think I think Amazon for all their all their faults open the window there of opportunity for the independent stores. And Amazon, as, as, as we mentioned, you know, uh, does allow people to self-publish. Uh, there's a, That has added a whole thing. I mean, before, if a book... Well, and Amazon know, is out, also a publisher. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they they have a curated publishing operation that um, that's pretty good. I mean, I submit stuff to them as an agent. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know they're a movie studio. I mean they're they're producing content. Well, of let's, all let's sorts yes, of things. they're the everything store. But maybe we yeah. can confine ourselves to the book business. Yeah, I mean uh, you know honestly, I I uh, I mean for all the objections that are possible to make to Amazon, I'm kind of a loyalist because I adopted so early that my password has three characters. <laughs> I, I, okay, it's not very secure, but I'm I'm proud of this, and. Uh, at the time, Bebel was still a thing, and I was trying to get all these books, kind of obscure titles for research on the Haitian Revolution. And I tried to get them from Bebelow, and they'd say six weeks to two months and then not deliver. And this Amazon was just starting then. They would get me the thing in a week. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, they, they, at a, at a certain they, point, they just like, started with books, and then yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. And it went from well, there they started, to as we else. all know now, they started with books because books aren't perishable. They, Jeff Bezos doesn't particularly care about books, but yeah, uh, <laughs> but, but, but they don't rot in the it, sun. It, it was, yeah. He was looking for a product uh, that was more attractive than canned beans. But I, but I wonder um, if 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 uh, you know a, a model like the Concord Free Press, which is what you've uh, published this latest novel, 
uh, with if 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 that's going to be duplicated, if there if there are you know movements towards you know just making this content available to people uh, for reasons other than profit, for reasons other than making a publisher money. Um. Well, I, I think it takes a very special you know synergy of people and intention to make something like Concord happen. I don't think that's going to be like the new way things work everywhere by any mm-hmm. means. Uh, self-publication is a lot bigger and and tends to, for most people, goes nowhere. It works better for genre writers. I mean, who? Than, uh, wh- what is the advice uh, that you give to your clients and to your students at Goucher College uh, who are, you know, who are aspiring to a life uh, as, a, as a literary uh, creator? Well, first of all, it's going to be expected to be really difficult. You know, you're going into, uh, uh, you're competing with a lot more people than I was when I started out. So if you're looking at me, I'm not a good example. It's, it's going to be, you're, you're going to be operating in a different world. And, and basically, I mean, my, my excuse for being a teacher and training all these new writers to be released into a market that more or less isn't there is that I teach undergraduates. And my standard advice to all of the ones who are good enough to go on is don't automatically go to an MFA program. Wait until you have a good start on what's going to be your first published book, like 5,200 pages, then apply to those programs. Hmm, Use the time to write them, and then you will finish the book while you're in the program, and you'll come out with something you can try to publish. That will put you in the top 10% of everybody who graduates from. Timing is everything, and our time is up. Madison Smart Bell, his latest novel is called The Witch of Matongay. It's published by the Concord Free Press, and we'll have a link to information about how to get it at wipr.org slash midday. Thanks, Madison. I appreciate it. Me too. Thanks for joining us. I'm Tom Hall. Have a great day. You're listening to Your Public Radio, 88.1 WYPR.